what counts now is promoting conversion therapy, recommending to somebody in need that they go to their pastor for pastoral advice. Parents are asking, well, what does this mean about my ability to raise my kids as I, I see fit? So whatever eventually happens in the courts in the meantime is a very serious uh, social cultural situation that's going to emerge, is already emerging, actually. Well, hello, welcome to Freedom Feature Podcast at First Freedoms Foundation, and I'm Barry Bussey. And with me today, I have two great guests, uh, Dr. Don Hutchinson, who's a lawyer who has spent much of his career advocating for religious freedom, before Canadian courts, parliament, and in his many uh, other writings, op-ed pieces, and also uh, a number of books. His website, donhutchinson.ca, and we'll have this link for you down at the bottom, uh, for his uh, latest blogs and current issues affecting people of faith. So uh, welcome, Don. Glad to have you with us. Thanks, Barry. Great to be here. And uh, we have also Dr. Ian Provan, who is the Marshall Shepherd Professor of Biblical Studies at Regent College in Vancouver, BC, and an ordained minister of the Church of Scotland. Dr. Provan has written a number of books that relate to religion and culture, and his website is ianprovan.ca, uh, and there you'll be able to get his latest information. So, gentlemen, welcome, and uh, it's uh, a pleasure to have you. And here at First Freedoms Foundation is a place where we want to debate, educate, and advocate, uh, if necessary, go to court, uh, to uh, support freedoms, our first freedoms. And those first freedoms include freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, and the inviolability of the person. So when we see public policies that run contrary to these basic freedoms, we want to find out what is happening and what needs to be done. Now, both of you gentlemen, uh, you wrote some uh, short articles recently on the federal government's pushing through a piece of legislation uh, that is really in record time, it seems, uh, that they put this through Parliament, known as Bill C-4. It makes it a criminal offense for anyone in Canada to be engaged in quote-unquote conversion therapy. So for the benefit of our listeners, I will post a full copy of this conversion therapy legislation with a link at the bottom, uh, so you'll be able to have a look at it at your own pleasure. But I just want to introduce this topic in a for everyone so we can set the context. For several years, this government, current federal government, has made the topic of conversion therapy a major plank in its political platform. Conversion therapy has been used as a historical term to refer to methods used by uh, professionals who wanted to assist an individual to change their sexual orientation or their gender identity. And we've heard all about the horror stories of people who've gone through electric shock treatment, hormone therapy, and so forth. But now the discussion is not about those horrific stories. It's now moved on well beyond the historical reference, as it were, to a concept that's much more broad in scope. And the conversion therapy bill itself says that conversion therapy is any practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, 
change a person's gender identities to cisgender, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity, or repress to reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to sex assigned to the person at birth. Now, if you look at all of what it's talking about, conversion therapy, uh, many people say, well, so what exactly is conversion therapy? Because um, in this particular definition, we see that there is now a new crime, that if you're involved in this uh, practice treatment and so forth, uh, in which you're trying to prevent the person to identify with an opposite uh, uh, identity than their birth, than their sex at birth, that that is going to be a crime and so forth. And so it, it would appear that there's kind of a, a cloud uh, over anybody discussing um, these issues of sexual orientation, sexual identity. It's certainly uh, when people are raising um, religious positions with respect to this. And you gentlemen have written on this bill. Uh, you're concerned with the way it's been passed and so forth, but I'm interesting, interested in knowing from you what you think this will do to our first freedoms, our freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, freedom uh, with respect to the inviolability of the human person. And perhaps, Don, I'll start off with you. You wrote two articles about this. And um, can you tell us about the process of this bill coming into play that uh, you've been concerned about? Yes, Barry, there are significant procedural concerns. Uh, the bill was first introduced in the first session of the last parliament. Uh, we will recall that that parliament, uh, that, that session was prorogued. And so everything that the government introduced fell. And so it was reintroduced as Bill C-6 in the second session of the parliament. And that's where the procedural problems started. Uh, C-6 after second reading was referred to the Standing Committee on Justice for review. At the Justice Committee, there were, um, there was a very long line of witnesses, but the Justice Committee allocated only six hours to hear from them. In those six hours, the first two hours were spent with government representatives. The other four hours were five minute segments for other people who had been approved to provide testimony. And the committee set December 6th of um, 2020 as the date by which written submissions had to be presented. Okay. Written submissions to parliament must be made in either both official languages, or if you make them in one language, they have to be interpreted into the other language before they're circulated to members of parliament or members of a parliamentary committee. So as of December 6, there were some 290 written submissions. Uh, roughly 260 of them had to be translated. The committee decided on December 10th to hold its final meeting and to produce its final report, while about 220 of those submissions were still in process. So an invitation to hear from Can Canadians was shut down when the final report of the committee was delivered on December 11th to the House of Commons. 
So, so any idea as to what the rush was all about? Like, on December the eleventh, twenty twenty, the house rose for Christmas recess, and they didn't come back till the last week of January. Mm. So there was plenty of time to allow the submissions to come in, to scan over them, to look at them, and uh, the conservative members of the committee objected to arriving at the final report before that opportunity was presented, but they were outnumbered by the Liberal, NDP, and Bloc members of the committee. So the final report came into the House. One would have thought, with the final report coming in December, that the House would have moved fairly quickly to pass it on to the Senate. But they sat on the bill until June, with only a few weeks remaining in the sitting, before passing it at third reading, forwarding it on to the Senate. And at that time, the Senate indicated they were going to give full study to the bill before they would uh, pass it through third reading. And of course, the Prime Minister called an election in August, so the bill died again. It was brought back as Bill C-4 in the current Parliament in the first session, introduced into the House on November 29th. December 1st, we had a motion from the Conservative Party for unanimous consent to pass first, second, and third reading and send it on to the Senate. There was a problem with that. Besides the obvious, where's the opposition in opposition? The problem was that under the Department of Justice Act, the Minister of Justice is required by law to introduce what's called a charter statement to explain if there are any charter difficulties or potential charter difficulties with government legislation. And Bill C-4 was not the same as C-6. So there had to be a new charter statement prepared. They had beefed up the language to add uh, some additional areas to be captured by the crime in regard to conversion therapy. And the charter statement had not yet been tabled in the House of Commons. Hmm. So by law, they couldn't proceed beyond first reading of the bill until that charter statement was filed. So the minister's responsibility is in section 4.2 of the Department of Justice Act and the requirement of parliament to wait until that statement's filed is found in section 4.1, which obliges the minister to uh, prepare the statement for parliamentary purposes. So what we have here is um, not only a procedural issue, but we have a legal problem in the passage of the bill. Hmm. The bill went to the Senate where the, the, the Senate uh, had first reading on the bill on December the 2nd or 3rd, I forget which, and then they went home for the weekend, returned on the Tuesday, December the 7th, and had a similar um, all-party agreement to pass the bill through the remaining stages. And then on December the 8th, Governor General Mary Simon signed the royal assent, making it law. The charter statement, curiously, Mm. was filed by the Department of Justice, or tabled, as it's called, in the House of Commons on Sunday, December the 6th, according to the Department of Justice. But the House doesn't meet on on weekends, and so there was nobody in the House of Commons on December the 6th. And the statement indicating that filing, as well as the statement itself, was not produced publicly by the Department of Justice and placed on their website 
until December the 8th, the day the bill received royal assent. So the first date on which it was available to members of parliament and to senators was the day on which it received royal assent. Incredible. So that's that's my nutshelling of my procedural concerns with yep. the bill. And Ian, I'll just uh, turn it over to you right now. You've raised some observations about the bill itself. And depending on time, maybe, Don, we can have some relay here on this as well. But what is it that you are concerned when you're looking at this uh, conversion therapy bill? Well, once again, we have to be very clear that the bills are not the same. There's been a, a, a kind of a bit of a fake news about this, that somehow these bills are the same and things apply to both and therefore we shouldn't be fussing about it. But actually there are things that were a problem already with Bill C-6 and there are things that are now a bigger problem with Bill C-4. Um, so starting with um, Bill C-6, right from the beginning of the process, the government has claimed that it wanted only to criminalize coercive efforts to change a person's sexual identity. Mm -hmm. uh, government ministers at the Justice Committee in the two hours that they were given that Don alluded to said that very, very directly and clearly. And Justice Lamenti repeated it after Bill C-4 was passed in uh, an interview with a journalist asked about why they had now introduced um, adults into the equation, said, you cannot consent to torture. So clearly, this is the, what he's thinking of is, is very coercive. Torture is not just coercion, that's even worse. Mm -hmm. the, the thing about this, it's always been clear to anyone who read the thing, which apparently does not involve, include many MPs, by the way, the definition of coercion therapy never ever mentioned coercion or force at all, at any point. And all attempts to get those lang that language added were resisted by the government. And apparently now the Conservative Party also doesn't care <laughs> that that language is not in the definition. And the problem here is, any lawyer will tell you, is that it's what's in the wording of the legislation that matters, not what government ministers claim about it. So that's the first massively large problem, that the definition is an atrociously bad definition and incredibly um, large in its ability to capture uh, things in it that are well beyond coercion, force, or torture, for that matter. Secondly, of course, Bill C-4, rather obviously, you would have thought, and it's perfectly obvious that this is true, that whereas Bill C-6 said it would not be a crime for people to offer uh, conversion therapy to consenting adults, Bill C-4 has removed that exemption. And this is, I think, maybe the most extraordinary aspect of the new legislation. And it's the thing that makes the Conservative Party's refusal to question it most egregious, in my opinion. Um, Justice Lametti explicitly said in the Justice Committee hearings that their best legal advice was that to make the offering of conversion therapy illegal for adults would be subject to a charter challenge. But in spite of the fact that was his best legal advice back then, that's now in the law. That is the criminal law. Um, and that's clearly the an infringement, a serious infringement of a person's liberty, an adult Canadian citizen's liberty to choose the kind of counseling that he or she desires in relation to issues of sex and identity. So that's the second one. And I am being brief here, by the way. If I was to speak at length on the various problems with this bill, it would 
take a very, very long time. And you'll have to stop me if I get boring. Thirdly, no, no. <laughs> thirdly, there is a, a change in Bill C4 that I don't think has been sufficiently well discussed. Um, but I noticed it right away as a bit of a nerd when it comes to tax. Um, Bill C6 in its preamble refers to the myth that a person's sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression ought to be changed. That's the wording of Bill C6. Now, that's not yet directly an assault on Christian or other faiths, or even on what we might call traditional values, because people holding to those faiths and values do not believe that all desired changes in our human condition are in fact possible. So it's not yet a direct assault on freedom of religion. But Bill C4 now refers to the myth in very different language. Um, the myth that, I'm quoting, heterosexuality, cisgender, gender identity, gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. That is, I suggest, a direct assault on many people's beliefs and consequent practices. And the implications of that come out clearly in the criminal code itself, where conversion therapy is said not to include a practice, treatment, or service that's not based on an assumption that a particular sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression is to be preferred over another. In other words, this appears to imply that if you possess convictions about things in this area in terms of right and wrong and so on and preferred or non-preferred and you're offering counseling from that perspective be it as consensual as you can imagine mm -hmm. you are in legal jeopardy and as far facing, as i can see and then facing up to five years uh imprisonment if you're uh, it, it's a very very serious matter and for the government and even worse for the opposition to just wave their hand at this, waving into criminal, the criminal code of Canada, which is a fearsome, a fearsome thing, right? Just to, to wave at this and then to jump up and down celebrating that you've done a wonderful thing is the most appalling assault on our democracy and, and, and our justice system. And finally, if I may, I, I'm sorry to belabor the point, but this is really a very bad bill. Um, the whole business of practice treatment or service in, in the definition, this has, right from the beginning, people say, well, what do you mean by practice treatment or service? What do you, you're not using the word coercion or force or torture here. So what, which practices, treatment and services are now being criminalized? And the government has basically just responded to that by saying, don't worry about it. The language is entirely clear. The language is entirely not clear. <laughs> and I've spoken to many lawyers who assure me it is not clear. Not one of these three key terms is defined elsewhere in the Criminal Code of Canada. And practice is particularly broad in its normal usage. Merriam-Webster says a practice is, quote, a repeated or customary action. Any repeated or customary action. Now think about that. The question that naturally arises from this is, is it possible for any citizen actually to discern in advance of being prosecuted for a particular action what it is that Bill C-4 sets out to criminalize? And the answer is no, it's not possible to know in advance. And in fact, justice uh, ministry officials said that it was not possible. They took the rather sunny view, it was for the courts to decide, which I, 
again, well, lucky you if you're the person dragged through the courts for, I don't know, five years on this issue before they decide whether you as a parent are guilty of conversion therapy for refusing to let your son go to school dressed as a girl. And I'm not pulling that out of midair. That was the example that one of the Justice Committee members pressed on the Justice Ministry official who admitted that the word practice was indeed broad and it wasn't clear. So um, this is just the beginning of it. I have something to say about promoting conversion therapy in a minute if, if we come back to that. But the most appalling thing to me about this is that it's one thing if you just do stuff because you don't know better. But when you've been told again and again and again by smart, committed, impassioned people, lawyers, members of the LGBT community and, and medical professionals, psychiatrists and all the rest of it, when you've been told again and again and again, this is a bad piece of legislation, you should not pass it. And when you go away and come back with a worse version of it and pass it that quickly, you are doing something utterly egregious, mm. in, in my opinion. And it seems that because the nature of the legislation dealing with a matter that has become such a politically charged uh, concern that many people, the media obviously are not interested in, uh, in pointing these, uh, these shortfalls out. We get um, everyone being kind of pressured to just keep it quiet, put it through, we'll see what happens. Uh, kind of mindset. And this is going to set up for a horrible situation, as you mentioned, for the first person who's going to be charged under this legislation. And for sure, uh, I don't think we should be under any illusion. People will be charged. And it's going to be something that, uh, yes, the courts are going to have to deal with. But to be honest with you, my confidence, and, and I speak as a lawyer, but my experience over the last several years uh, tells me that the courts, when it comes to these political issues, are more and more deferring uh, to government. And, and that really bothers me. Uh, Don, do, do you want to say anything on this? I'm concerned about where the courts seem to be headed. I was, I was privileged to talk on, on Parliament Hill uh, on the, uh, the Trinity Western University decisions that came out of the Supreme Court of Canada. And the question that I posed at that time was whether the Trinity Western decisions were the last decisions on religious freedom of the McLaughlin Court or the first of the Wagner Court. Mm -hmm. The McLaughlin Court had a fairly good track record on recognition of religious freedom over the, over the period of, of uh, Chief Justice McLaughlin's time. And, and within that track record, we pull out what the Department of Justice identified as problems with the bill. For the Department of Justice to come out with a charter statement that says, this is, this is legislation that will most likely infringe on religious freedoms because religious communities and religious individuals will hold a different position to that uh, presented by the government's ideological position. Mm -hmm. For the Department of Justice to come out as Ian has already referenced uh, and say that they have concerns that this legislation will violate section seven, the life, liberty, and security of the person, which is not to be compromised except 
when using the principles of fundamental justice, which have been ignored here mm -hmm. and don't come into play until you're in a courtroom, for the Department of Justice to say this will limit uh, a person's ability to seek the type of counseling they would want if they desire to live a life that aligns with the sex that they were born with. Mm -hmm. um, these things definitely should have been debated in Parliament and were not. So when we get into the courts, uh, the other issue that the Department of Justice has identified, which Ian has also alluded to, is that the lack of definition in the language makes the, the legislation overly broad. Overly broad is, is uh, another reason for either striking down the legislation or amending it. And, and when I look at that, I see a justice minister who um, normally would have been held to account by the opposition. They would have demanded his resignation for failing to present a charter statement before the bill proceeded. And he really uh, should have courageously stood to his feet when the motion was presented by the conservatives and said, I have a legal obligation here. Yeah. Don't make me break the law. But he didn't do that. But, but because the, the, the opposition was complicit in this, I don't expect he'll be held to account by them, but he may be held to account by the courts. The courts may look at this and say the legislation was passed improperly. They may look at it and say it's overly broad. They may look at it and say, you didn't deal with even the warnings you had from the Department of Justice. But here's the thing, when you're ideologically driven, which is my concern about this, mm -hmm. this is a justice minister whose government introduced legislation dealing with medical assistance in dying. And when it faced its first challenge in the courts, the decision of a single judge That's saying that court. broader, uh, instead of defending the legislation, which governments historically have done, and, mm -hmm. and really it has been the custom of parliament to defend legislation introduced even by previous governments, let alone by, by the same government in power. Right. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't appeal that decision, but simply said, we're going to amend this legislation, even though the legislation required that within nine months of the decision that was made, the legislation be reviewed by parliament. Mm -hmm. And so he bypassed that parliamentary review and expanded medical assistance in dying. Then he came back with this bill is he going to defend this bill if it's challenged in the courts? It'll be interesting to see because I expect that he will. Yeah. Because this is a bill that he wanted to see passed. This is a bill that he strengthened from its previous uh, legislation only in regard to what would be considered criminal uh, in action or intent. And this is a bill that has been pushed through with a strong anti-religious animus noted in its preamble, which yeah. again is um, a violation of, of what the Supreme Court of Canada has laid down for us, that government is not supposed to hold a position on religious matters. Government is to be neutral. Uh, even in the, the reference to same-sex marriage, which I think is the most recent comparator to this kind of legislation, the Supreme Court of Canada said, yes, the government has the authority to change the definition 
but the government also has the responsibility to respect that there are people who legitimately hold different opinions. Mm. If the definitions in this legislation had been put in place, not just improved, but simply put in place, mm. what is conversion therapy uh, and, and the things that, that Ian has mentioned, then I think we could have had we could have had a bill that would be workable for Canadian society and would have met the government's obligation under the Constitution Act of 1867 to provide peace, order, and good government. Mm. This legislation, deferring to the courts to interpret the language of, of the legislation, uh, doesn't provide peace of mind. It doesn't provide orderly uh, uh, understanding of the legislation, and, and it is poor government. One of the things that really bothers me about this whole situation is, number one, as you mentioned, it's an ideologically driven government. Number two is the cynicism that we see in government by being so um, flippant with respect to this legislation, and they're going to put it through. And number three, it seems to me that the prime minister now has a justice minister that's going to outlast or be there as long as the prime minister is there, because it seems to me that the prime minister is getting exactly what he wants. We have seen a previous uh, 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 justice minister um, that, that basically was trying to stand up when things were going that would be against policy, against procedure and all the rest of it. And that person got shifted, uh, but this person is staying in because um, the the political ideology is just going straight on through. So there's some some really uh, serious concerns here, and I I also am concerned. I, I I appreciate very much, Don. You're you're optimistic with or at least, and and rightly so, um, that the courts will will say, look, maybe this is a step too far. That even even the court, perhaps even um, the Supreme Court will look at this and say, you know what, this is like really in your face too far here. Um, but I, I don't know, there's, there's part of me that just uh, shakes my head sometimes, especially when you read the Trinity Western decision, as you pointed out. Uh, it, it just causes me to be like, I'm, I'm really concerned as to exactly what the court will do with this. Ian, you had some other thoughts that you wanted to share as well. Well, I mean, just to get to the, the very depths of the, the terribleness of this, I haven't even mentioned um, the section on promotion of conversion therapy again. I mean, the, the fact that conservative MPs could, could look people straight in the eye and say, what's the problem? It's the same bill as it was last, last time, mm -hmm. when evidently it is not, is the most disturbing, one of the most disturbing things to me. So the previous bill, C6, um, said everyone who knowingly promotes or advertises an offer to provide conversion therapy is guilty of an indictable offense. Bill C4 removes an offer to provide. So the bill, the, the promotion thing is now everyone who knowingly promotes conversion therapy is guilty of an indictable offense. Now remember, conversion therapy is any practice, et cetera, and so on and so forth of the sort that we, we talked about, right? This massively broad definition. So here's the question. When a pastor promotes a certain view of how to raise children, is the pastor thereby promoting conversion therapy? Mm -hmm. Well, we don't know yet, 
right? I mean, it, again, it, it seems such a small change, but as somebody, and I know all of us are in this position, as somebody who's been tracking this for a couple of years now, this has been a build as incrementally gathered omissions and additions along the way, barely noticed sometimes. And the cumulative effect is really very, very bad. And so the promotion thing, uh, what counts now is promoting conversion therapy, recommending to somebody in need that they go to their pastor for pastoral advice mm. on matters of sex and identity. And no matter what happens in the courts, eventually, this is already casting a chill over the entire area of counseling, pastoring, parenting, and so on. People, uh, medical professionals are deciding simply not to deal with children under these circumstances because they're, they're, they're afraid of the outcomes. Pastors are asking me, well, what does this mean for our counseling service in our church? Parents are asking, well, what does this mean about my ability to raise my kids as I, I see fit? So whatever eventually happens in the church, the, in, in the courts, in the meantime, there is, is a very serious uh, social, cultural situation that's going to emerge, is already emerging, actually. As time goes on with this chilling effect, a lot of people are very cognizant of the fact that this prime minister has made it very clear that if you're ideologically offside uh, with, with him and his views, uh, it's not only, uh, and, and in this case, we got the most power, big, biggest stick, as it were, of the state, in that of, of being charged with a crime, having to serve time. But also, there is the other element that I think is uh, in the back of a lot of people's minds with respect to this, and that is the whole issue of charitable registration of uh, organizations that are not towing uh, the ideological positions of this government. We saw it in the Canada summer jobs issue as far as issuing grants. We saw it with the prime minister's um, threat with respect to pro-life organizations that are um, supposedly giving disinformation or dishonest information. So now you've got the biggest stick of the state now being used against um, religious communities that will not uh, accept the government's uh, position. And, and like you say, the preamble, as, as was mentioned earlier, has really set the stage. It seems to me like this is, this is kind of like the great reset of moral understanding that the prime minister wants to, like let alone climate change. We're talking about just understanding um, uh, that has been uh, in the Christian community since the very beginning, in the Judeo-Christian community since the beginning uh, early, early time. So, so we're into a situation, Don, you wrote um, that it's important for us to um, challenge and comply. And can you unpack that for us a little bit? Well, I think we need to be prepared, um, certainly in the legal community, for challenge. And we're also in a setting where uh, we can learn lessons from the types of challenges that have come from the LGBT plus community and from other communities in regards to our charter rights. I'm certainly aware of situations where people have sought counseling to support them living a life that's consistent with their religious beliefs when they've had feelings and inclinations uh, in, in the other direction. 
that's really the best case scenario to present to the courts um, if we're going to challenge in that way. I also think that we can continue having uh, private and public conversations in the political arenas that are engaged, understanding that at this point in time, the likelihood of changing the legislation in the current parliament may be, might be slim. But knowing that uh, we've had a number of legal changes to the criminal code, uh, medical assistance in dying was a change to the criminal code. Uh, in 1969, the Prime Minister's father legalized uh, homosexuality and, and uh, created a, a legal structure in which uh, abortion could take place uh, in the interests of the mother's health, based on things that he said he, he might have, as uh, Prime Minister Mulroney's government did, when the Supreme Court of Canada struck down the abortion law and, and opened abortion to anyone on demand, essentially, he might have done the same thing that Mulroney's government did, which was present new legislation to replace the legislation that was struck down to place limits on abortion, such as those found in the United Kingdom and, and throughout Europe and, and uh, North and South America. There's no reason why we wouldn't continue to ask for these things to define, be defined and to recognize the importance to uh, religious communities for those who desire to live a life that complies with their religious convictions hmm. um, and, and receive the assistance and the guidance of a priest or a pastor or an imam or a rabbi in, in the setting in which they're seeking to live out their religious conviction. That's the challenge area. The compliance area that I, I promote for, for the church and encourage is to remember <laughs> that the New Testament was written by men who were living in an era of intense persecution. Christianity had never been a majority at that point. Christianity was not a welcome religion, uh, but they were still writing the things that are foundational to our beliefs today. Mm -hmm. And we are in a position to, as Ian mentioned, a chill effect, to be warm against the chill, to be consistent and compassionate in our convictions and our communications in our religious expression. In an early draft of one of the articles, uh, I had, had written that the easiest way to comply is don't torture. Uh, I took that out because churches already were not engaged in torture. Okay, there, there were historic incidents largely driven by some events in another country that were not related to what was taking place in Canada. There were historic incidents uh, when um, corporal punishment was more common in Canada uh, that, again, are, are, they're distant history. They're, they're behind uh, a societal development that has set those things aside a long time ago. And that type of behavior, quite frankly, was already covered in the criminal code. So there would have been no need. So the challenge side of things I liken to, um, you know, in, in the early part of this century, uh, Catholics and evangelicals were advocating with the Minister of Justice, Erwin Kotler, to introduce a section in the criminal code to deal with human trafficking. 
and even though the component parts could be found throughout the code, this would provide a focus. And so his government introduced that legislation. And then um, the following government, the Harper government, so we, we moved from the Martin government to the Harper government, and the Harper government uh, created a national action plan with the provinces that allowed for action and compliance with that legislation. Uh, we had the Mulroney government that defended the prostitution provisions in the criminal code, and they were upheld by the Supreme Court of Canada. Then they were struck down uh, under the Harper government, and new legislation was put in place working with the Justice Minister, uh, Peter McKay. So legislation is constantly in flux. We shouldn't let go of that. But as the church, the way we comply is by being ourselves, understanding that the beliefs and practices that we hold to prior to the charter and after the charter have been found by the courts to be legitimately within the range of our freedom of religion. If we don't continue to exercise our freedoms in a caring, compassionate uh, way, then we're the ones who are sacrificing them. Right. right. They're not being taken from us. Right. We, we, uh, we're and, voluntarily giving them up. There you go. In my first book, Under Siege, I, I used Don Cherry's illustration that uh, two nothing is the most dangerous lead in hockey. And why is that? It's the most dangerous lead in hockey because a team starts playing defensively to protect that lead. And it gives the other team the opportunity to go on offense. And when the other team scores the first goal, uh, the team that had, had now has a 2-1 lead continues to be defensive. When the other team scores the second goal, that team doesn't know how to get offensive again in the moment. Mm. And so they're stuck playing defense. We shouldn't move into playing defense. We should continue to be the church, the body of Christ, faithful to the teachings that we find in the scriptures, and um, I quoted in the, in the one article because I think it is uh, the, the seminal uh, point on which we, we turn in, in this and other areas. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And that's Galatians 5 verses 22 and 23. It's not that those things and the practices of the church can't be found to be illegal by a government. Mm -hmm. It is that when we behave in that manner in our dealings with other Christians and people who are not Christians, we are more likely to find that we are supported within the church and outside the church. We're more likely to find that that behavior will be supported by the courts and will be influential in whatever changes we're seeking in the legislation and government. Mm. Okay, good points. Ian, anything to add there? Well, not much to add. That was wonderful. I completely agree with both ethos and, and substance there. It was very well said. Um, I mean, I suppose it ought to be, it ought to go without saying, don't torture, you know, but it seems that we're now in a situation like the early Christians where we have to keep telling people what we don't do when we get together in our <laughs> church gatherings, you know, actually we don't eat, you know, actual people in our communion. We are really back in that kind of apologetical yeah. pagan environment, right? So maybe we do need to say, yeah, we don't agree with torture. Maybe we have to say that out loud. 
but I do think self-censorship is already happening. And I think it's a massive problem. And, you know, if you, if you, if you do not defend particularly your freedom of speech, you cannot defend all the other freedoms, right? That to me, that's the fundamental one. And maybe that's open for discussion. But to me, if, if you, if you, if you yourself choose not to speak, then who, who do you have to blame for that, right? And so I think the gospel has to be preached. I, I think the church has to continue to teach its traditional biblical, you know, centuries-long sexual ethic, even if people don't like it and find it offensive. I think that we have to keep on doing that. And I want to say with a caveat that we also, in addition to not torturing, we, we want to not coerce, but here is where the gray area begins to come in, it seems to me. This is the area where I think if there's going to be trouble that's not brought in our own heads, that this is where it's going to be. Um, parenting, what counts as coercion in parenting, for example, right? Uh, I mean, parents do tend to discipline children, I believe, still in this free-for-all world. At least good parents do. Good parents seek to guide. Good parents seek to prevent, as it lies in their power, prevent children from making poor decisions, you know. Um, in the increasingly ideological environment of our schools, as we're engaging with that as parents, if, we, if our children are still in public school, I think we're going, this is one of the risk areas. This is an area where I think parents are going to need a lot of advice, a lot of good advice from people like ourselves about the kinds of things to say and do and not, and how to avoid getting into a situation where your child becomes almost a pawn in a battle between parents and school authorities, for example because the school environment now is, 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 is becoming increasingly pretty awful on the ground. I mean, being trans, I understand from people of, uh, that I speak to, being trans in high school is now the thing, you know, it's the hip thing, claims thereof, I mean. So th this is the environment where uh, coercion, another area would be church discipline, you know, the idea that the Christian, the Christian church is a discipleship community and that we not only preach the gospel, we expect people to live by a code, to follow Christ in their lives. And this historically has been understood as, as requiring sometimes that there be church discipline. Well, that's coercive, I think. So I think that a number of prof professional people are, are going to be in this gray area. Parents are going to be in this gray area. Pastors need to lead courageously, but sensibly. I, I'm very much with Don. I, I think I see... The book of Daniel to me is the great paradigm for living in exile, which is what we're currently in a sense doing, post-Christendom. And I think that the key is to know when you're in Daniel 1 and when you're in Daniel 3. <laughs> and that is a matter of practical wisdom. And we need to help each other to know when we are in which one. If I have to go to prison for agreeing to help somebody in deep distress because of gender dysphoria, and that's the reason I'm sent to prison? Okay, I think I just have to accept that and, and go to prison. If it's something else, though, where I'm behaving like a jerk in some way or whatever, or, you know, that's a different matter, right? And I, I think that the Daniel 1, Daniel 3 kind of issue, these are, these are the touchy points for me in this next period of uncertainty. And uh, I think people are going to need a lot of help. And for example, I understand there's, or at least I got a phone call from a reporter just uh, last week about um, 
a move to have a series of pastors across the country um, on a, a given day to preach. Uh, so basically uh, to dare the government to go ahead and arrest them because of what they're going to preach. More of a provocative kind of approach. And what I'm hearing from you gentlemen is like, okay, folks, let's settle down. Uh, you know, carry on with ministry. Don't be afraid to preach as, as necessary. But what I'm hearing from you is perhaps don't go poking the bear. Well, you're kind of hearing that, Barry, but the trouble is what poking the bear looks like is also open to interpretation. So I, I'm not, I, the self-censorship thing is also a bad thing, right? Yeah. So I, I think if people choose all to preach next Sunday, on this issue generally about what the Christian view of sexual identity and stuff is, that's fine by me, right? Mm, mm. Um, that, that is just a matter of the Christian church being the Christian church, right? Mm. And if that's no longer defensible, so be it. We're in a very bad place, right? That's a different matter. Um, if people are going to be deliberately provocative on, on their church websites, um, you know, offering practice using let's say using the language of practices and services and stuff and deliberately you know offering that well okay that's another thing though um and so i think negotiating a way around these things is going to be challenging i agree with what you said ian i also note that there has been circulating an encouragement from an american pastor um, to declare i understand this is illegal and i'm breaking the law uh, and that I disagree with, because I don't see the church being consistent with itself, with its doctrinal understandings and with scripture being legal. That's why we have freedom of religion. Mm -hmm. And if somebody wants to, to challenge that it is illegal, uh, then, then we have to face it in the courts. Barry, you, you, I think know as well as I do, and Ian, I'm not sure if you've got as broad an experience, but I'm not going to put my faith in uh, prosecutors understanding freedom of religion. Mm -hmm. uh, neither do I put my faith in the government understanding freedom of religion. And that's why we have lawyers, uh, very such as yourself, who have undertaken to engage in this arena. And there, there are lawyers across the country, some who do not share our faith, <laughs> who stand for religious freedom uh, as they engage on charter rights. There are lawyers who do share our faith, who have made it a point of their, their focus in their careers to drop other balls in order to take on cases dealing with freedom of religion. And I think we're going to see some, some solid defense if we end up in the courts. But I, I remain hopeful that um, even though there are likely to be some, there's likely to be some targeting and you can't avoid targeting. Mm -hmm. You can't avoid somebody showing up specifically because they want to get you in trouble and try this thing right. out. Even, even if you're, you're, you know, the most complicit kind of, pastor on the planet if if you happen to to say the wrong word and they're targeting you you're you're out mm -hmm. so don't allow that to to scare you don't allow that to place a chill on your ministry um trust god move forward 
and know that there are people who are standing in the wings waiting to provide a, a defense in the courts. Right. There are people who will be continually engaging in Parliament. Those are opportunities that did not exist for the authors of the New Testament. Right. They couldn't challenge Caesar's edicts. They couldn't challenge the, uh, the actions of a, a Roman soldier or, or, or someone in a, in a position of authority within the empire. Mm. Uh, even, even Jesus didn't challenge Pilate uh, when he was going to the cross. Um, he engaged in conversation with him about the kingdom. And he was an incredible witness to Pilate uh, about what lay ahead and sufficiently so that we have a record of it that encourages us in the 21st century. So yeah, that's a very good point. There was no Cicero for Paul or Peter in Rome. And uh, that's a very good point. Uh, I appreciate that very much. So the, the takeaway here for our listeners, I think, is the recognition that we are to stand firm in our religious practice, that while we get these storm clouds coming around us with respect to government ideology that has become very challenging in recent times, uh, the message I'm hearing is that we need to be courageous. We need to continue, show that care, compassion, show, um, be a faithful witness. Uh, if we're called upon to give an account for where we stand on these issues, uh, we need to ensure that we are going to be faithfully witnessing for the cause of Christ at this time. So this is a powerful message. I want to thank you both uh, for uh, coming and joining with us here today uh, to talk about this. There'll be no doubt many opportunities for us to talk about this as we, as we go forward. At First Freedoms, I just want to let everyone know that we understand that not everyone is going to agree with our views, and that's the whole point of us existing and the views of our guests. But we're here to enter into a meaningful dialogue to discuss issues that no one else is willing to discuss. And as we have heard, our own parliament has showed a lack of interest in hearing other views uh, on this particular matter that we've talked about today at Convergent Therapy. But that's why we're here. Government may not listen, but we the people have the right to speak, and to speak we shall. And if you agree that now is the time for First Freedoms to address freedom, then please sign up for our mailing list. I encourage you to do that. And uh, we can only exist uh, with your financial support, so please click on that donate button. And whatever you give, it's going to be greatly appreciated. But remember, we're not a charity. We are not going to be seeking charitable status. This is uh, a, a conscious decision because we do not want to be limited by the government and what we can and cannot say in uh, holding government to account. So until next time, I'm Barry Bussey, and thank you for listening to Freedom Feature Podcast. Please consider giving a donation to help defend the rights of all Canadians by giving at firstfreedoms.com dot ca